We'll begin our study tonight in Second uh, Samuel. We're in chapter 3, so if you'll want to turn there to Second Samuel chapter 3, where we left off the last time in this story of uh, David's ascension to the throne, he now is the king over Judah, the one tribe, and Saul's son, Ishbosheth, was appointed by Saul's general, Abner, to be the king over all of the rest of the tribes of Israel. And he's not really a very strong individual, apparently, and Abner is the one who primarily is in control of things in the northern tribes. And we see that more and more as we move forward. But uh, some very tragic things are going to happen in these passages that we'll be looking at tonight. And it seems as though there's all kinds of uh, deviations from what we might plan whenever we think that we've got God's will uh, certainly before us and, and we know that uh, he's going to be acting in such and such a way. But as it turns out in David's life, and it turns out that way, I believe, in most of ours, it doesn't always work out exactly as we thought, but it always works out exactly as he intended. So keep that in mind as we go through these passages. There's a bit of gore and uh, unfortunate uh, situations that will be spoken of here, but there's also some very positive things that we can pick out as well. So here we go, chapter 3, 2 Samuel, beginning with verse 1. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. So you see this one simple verse that's indicating that the northern ten tribes are not united. They don't seem to be able to defend themselves against some of the things that uh, would be happening in their territories. Perhaps the Philistines were still very, very strong and uh, still attacking many of their villages. They didn't really have a coordinated effort because they didn't have a good, strong king over all of them. And as David is continuing to increase his strength in Judah, and he is successful in defeating those Philistines who would raid the territory of Judah, and he also was actually moving against the armies of Saul who were trying to keep him from taking more territory. So it was a very difficult time, and it was a very uncertain time for David. But we do know that Abner made it through that battle that ended up taking the life of Saul somehow, and he is very, very involved in the things that are happening in the northern 10 or 11 tribes of Israel. So verse 2 says, sons were born to David. This is kind of a deviation from that story, and the, the author does that from time to time, kind of interjecting certain things that may not really actually play into the story necessarily, but it's information that he chose to fill in at this particular juncture in the writing of chapter 3. talks about Saul's, or rather David's, sons. Sons were born to David while he was in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon by Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. His second, Chiliab, by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. The third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth, 
Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, Ithraim, by David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. Six boys, there were some probably daughters as well. Uh, we aren't seeing them mentioned here, but uh, the mention of these six in particular, because they all of them were born while he was king and reigning in the town or the city of Hebron. Now, he's eventually going to move the kingdom to Jerusalem, but that won't happen for a number of years. But we find here the mention of certain of his sons. Now, some of them we never will hear about again. But others of them do take part in the story of David as that story unfolds throughout the rest of this book of Second Samuel. The firstborn, Amnon, was a very, very important son, would have been the firstborn right would have been his to take the dynasty after David's death. It didn't happen. Amnon was killed by one of his uh, other brothers, half-brothers. And we'll see that as we go on. And uh, the second one was Chiliab. We know nothing more about Chiliab than this one mentioned here. Perhaps he didn't live very long. We're not told anything about uh, this young son of David who would have been next in line to the throne. And then there is a third born. His name is Absalom. And you'll remember as we read again further on into this uh, book of Second Samuel that Absalom is going to be um, a threat to David's throne much later on in his life. It's interesting to note also that Absalom is mentioned here as being the son of David's third wife, Maaka. And Maaka was the daughter of the king of Gesher, whose name was Talmai. Now that's important to note in this one sense. We're not exactly sure when she became his wife, but we do know that David, when he was raiding the villages uh, while he was uh, working basically for the Philistines under the King Achish of Gath, he raided all kinds of friendly communities to the Philistines. Among them were the Gesherites. Now this Talmai, the king of Gesher, and his daughter uh, Maaka may have been involved in those raids and it's likely, we believe, that David took this king's daughter to be his wife after having destroyed all of the inhabitants of that particular village where this King Talmai resided. Speculative, but it's very likely. If that is so, then Absalom may have a uh, dislike for David as a result of what David did to his grandfather and his grandfather's village. That's a real possibility. It may be why Absalom does what he does in the later years of David's life. Adonijah, another one that will take some amount of press in the scriptures, not all that much, but he is the one who actually kills his half-brother Amnon because Amnon had raped Adonijah's sister. That will play out again 
in the story of David, if you take note of the fact that what I've been describing are very negative things that are going to take place in the life of David much later on in his later years. There's a good reason for some of that, as will unfold for us as we read through the scriptures together. But keep all of those things in mind. Those are the three in particular, Amnon, Absalom, Adonijah, of those first six born in Hebron that were mentioned elsewhere. The rest were not. Well, verse 6 continues the story where he had left off in verse 2 with regard to the situation in the northern tribes with Ishbosheth as their king and Abner as his leading general. It says in verse 6, Now it was so, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. Take note of that. Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. It, se it seems that Ishbosheth was basically a puppet king. He basically took his orders from Abner, not the other way around. But in verse 7, it tells us, Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah. She was the daughter of Aiah. So Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David. And you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman? Now, we do not know whether the charge was true or false. We only know that Ishbosheth had charged Abner with a very grave sin, that of taking the concubine of Ishbosheth's father Saul and having laid with her according to Ishbosheth's argument, that would have been a very big slap in the face of Saul, even though he was already dead. Saul's family would have been insulted by such a thing because though Saul was dead, the concubines of the king would have been untouchables. They would not have been any way, shape, or form available to anyone other than Saul or his designated heir. That apparently was not done and if it is indeed so that Abner did take part in such a thing, it would have been a very, very bad stain on his character. But he doesn't really say yes or no to the accusation. His response is, hey, look what I've done for you guys. Look what I've done for the house of Saul. And I haven't delivered you, Ishbosheth, over to David. But since you're accusing me of this terrible thing, I'm not exactly sure that that's going to be very likely to continue. And that's pretty much what Abner goes on to say. In verse 9 it says, May God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not do for David, as the Lord had sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul, and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. And he, Ishbosheth, could not answer Abner another word, because he feared him. So there you have the situation. Abner has been accused, wrongly or not, he's been accused, and his response is, I'm going to go take care of what I know should have had 
been done long ago. David, he knew, was God's anointed. And he's saying to Ishbosheth, I'm going to turn over the rest of Israel to David, which is his rightful kingdom, not yours, Ishbosheth. Verse 12 continues and says, Then Abner sent messages on his behalf to David, saying, Whose is the land? Saying also, Make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. So Abner is saying to David by a messenger, I have the power to turn over all of the northern tribes into your hand, that they will follow you, agree to you being their king. He has the power, not Ishbosheth, but Abner is saying, I've got the ability, I've got the backing to do this, and I'm offering this to you. So David responds to this message, and in verse 13 it tells us, David said, good, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you. Now I wonder, we're not exactly sure why David is going to make this request. Many have speculated but I wonder if perhaps the primary reason is David doesn't know if he can trust Abner. So he's going to put before Abner a test of his loyalty. And I think there's maybe more to it than that. And we'll likely see that that might be so as we move forward here. But keep in mind that David is going to make a request of Abner. And he's going to send that request to Ishbosheth. And here's the request. One thing I will make a requirement of you, he says in verse 13, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Remember Michal? She was David's wife. David was forced to leave her. David didn't want to leave her, but he did because he had to run from Saul. And for over 10 years, he has been away from his wife, his only wife at the time, Michal. Now David, legally, is still bound to her as her husband. She is still legally bound to him as his wife. The only thing that could have separated them was a bill of divorcement, which was not given, or death, which did not happen. Technically, she remained his wife still. But yet there was a problem. During that 10-year period, Saul gave Michal to another man, whose name is Paltiel. We'll see that in a moment. And she was married to him. Now that, by Saul's doing, put both of those two into an adulterous relationship. That was against the law of Moses. So everything about that was absolutely wrong. But yet, David had no way to get Michal to himself until now. So he asks Abner, arrange for this. I want Michal to be brought to me. And when you bring her to me, then I'll know that you will be indeed truthful to what you have spoken. So David, verse 14, sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michal, whom I betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Remember, that was the deal that Saul had made with David. I will give you my daughter Michal for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. 
Well, David brought him 200 foreskins of the Philistines, and so he did much more than what Saul had requested of him, and she became his wife as a result of that. And then in verse 15 it says, And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. Ishbosheth was willing to do this because he feared both David and Abner. And he sends her by Abner, as we shall see in verse 16. It says, Then her husband went along with her. And this is such a sad scene, if you will. He sent for Michal, tears her from her husband Palchiel, and Abner is bringing her to David. And as he's going back to Hebron with this bride of wife of David, but also the wife of Paltiel. Paltiel is following behind Abner, and he's crying, weeping, all the way from where they lived to this community called Bahurim, which is near the Jordan River. And it says, Abner turned to him and finally said, Go, return. And he returned. He couldn't continue at the risk of losing his own life. So he left behind the woman that he had been married to now for apparently several years. I'm sure there was a great deal of love involved in this terrible incident, perhaps on both the part of Michal and certainly on the part of Paltiel. But it mattered not. Ishbosheth agreed, and Abner is coming now to David with David's first wife, Michal. Verse 17 says, Now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, In time past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then, do it. Now he's already making arrangements here. This is only less than two years into David's reign in Judah over the tribe of Judah. And Abner has made communication with all of the other tribes, saying, now is the time for you to act on what you already know is something that should be done. Do it now, for the Lord has spoken to David, or spoken of David, saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. It seems like things are going beautifully for David right now. Things are just right exactly as he would have expected. He's the king now in Judah. He's being offered the remainder of the tribes of Israel by the hand of Abner. And it seems as though everything is falling into place. He's even getting his first wife back. It looks good for David. We seem to think that that is the case, at least, until, of course, we read further. But it says in verse 19, And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin, where Ishbosheth was. Then Abner sent also and went to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel in the whole house of Benjamin. They all were in agreement. Yes, we'll do this thing. So Abner, verse 20 says, and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron. And David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Then Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my lord the king that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. They made a covenant agreement. It was a done deal. Everything was locked in place, ready to go. The people were going to be behind David. And once, finally, that has been accomplished, 
the entire nation will be under one king, the rightful king, God's chosen king. It's a great day in David's early years as king of Judah. However, Joab wasn't there. And remember Joab's issue that he had with Abner? We read about it the last time. It was Abner who had killed Joab's younger brother. In a battle, he defended himself. It wasn't that he was murderous. It was in self-defense that he killed Joab's younger brother. Joab would not forgive Abner for this, as we will see. But Joab wasn't there. It tells us here in verse 22, At that moment the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away and he had gone in peace. And when Joab and all the troops that were with him had come, they told Joab, saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he sent him away, and he is gone in peace. That word, that phrase, gone in peace, is now mentioned three times here. There was absolutely no reason for anybody to be upset until now. Verse 24 says, Then Joab came to the king and said, What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away and he is already gone? Surely you realize that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you, to know your going out and your coming in, and to know all that you are doing. He's saying to David, David, you've done foolishly. Now that's the general of David's army speaking to him in a very, very harsh and rude manner, certainly not becoming of a servant of the king. But remember, he is David's nephew. They're related. And perhaps he feels the liberty to speak to David as a man to man instead of servant to king. But in any case, it tells us in verse 26, when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, who brought him back from the well of Sirah, but David did not know it. He's doing something secretly behind David's back. Now this is the mind of a man who is on a mission. And it's not a good one. Verse 27 says, Now when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him privately, and there stabbed him in the stomach, so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. The avenger of blood. There is a place in the scripture where anyone who has a relative that has been murdered can avenge that murder, and that was the avenger of blood uh, arrangement that God had made in the law through Moses. Now, it had to be a legitimate murder. And in order for that to be confirmed, there were six cities set up throughout all of Israel. They were called cities of refuge. Hebron was one of those six cities. Anyone who had committed murder or even accidental killing of an individual could escape to one of those six cities and he would be protected until a judgment could be made. As long as he remained in that city, the avenger of blood could not come after him. However, if he left that city, 
then the avenger of blood could take it upon himself to kill that one and it would be accepted. Remember, Abner was in Hebron at the gate inside the city limits. He was in a city of refuge. He did not murder Asahel. He killed Asahel in self-defense in a time of a military encounter. Joab did not have the right of the avenger of blood. And even if he did, he did not have the right to execute this man Abner within the city walls of Hebron, but he did. No regard for the laws of God. Just anger. Completely furious revenge. And he kills him. Afterward, though, in verse 28, we see the results of all of this. When David heard it, he said, My kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house, and let there never fall or fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper or leans on a staff or falls by the sword or who lacks bread. David is angry at Joab. It seems very likely that he also demotes Joab at this particular time. We only see that elsewhere in the scripture. We're not told that here. But Joab has done something that David would not forgive him for. And although David himself would not take revenge upon Joab for this deed, he's going to make sure that revenge is meted out. And it happens much later on, after David's death, in the beginning of Solomon's reign. David will have left with Solomon the command to execute Joab after David's death. So verse 30 continues and says, So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had killed their brother Asahel at Gibeon in the battle. So not only is Joab guilty of murder here, but also complicit in that murder, perhaps taking part in the murder itself, was his other brother, Abishai. Now, Joab and Abishai both would go on to be David's mighty men in the many, many years that David will serve as their king. But David, again, will never forget this act. He continues on in verse 31 to talk about the mourning process with regard to David and how he really felt about Abner. Even though Abner was an enemy to David, along with his king Saul, David counted him to be a great man of Israel, and he treats him so after his death. Verse 31 says, And David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes, gird yourself with sackcloth, and mourn for Abner. And King David followed the coffin. So they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king sang a lament over Abner and said, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put into fetters. As a man falls before wicked men, so you fell. A short song that David wrote as a eulogy for this brave man, who was a general in Saul's army. 
And it says at the latter part of verse 34, Then all the people wept over him again. And when all the people came to persuade David to eat food while it was still day, David took an oath, saying, God, do so to me and more also if I taste bread on, or anything else till the sun goes down. He wanted to fast. He wanted to be in sackcloth and ashes, mourning over the loss of this great man who has fallen. Verse 36 says, Now all the people took note of it, and it pleased them, since whatever the king did pleased all the people. This apparently are the people of Judah that is being referred to here, not of the other tribes. But they were pleased to see David act as he did. Great character deserves great respect. And friends, we need to make sure that we present ourselves with that kind of character that God will honor, and not only men. You know, it's nice to receive the accolades of men, but I much prefer the things that God says to me about things that I have done, that they would be things that he is proud of, that he is pleased with. I don't want to do things that offend my Lord, and neither did David, and neither should any one of us. And so David pleased the people, and I'm sure that it pleased the Lord here as well. Verse 37 says, For all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner, the son of Ner. Then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I am weak today, though anointed king, and these men, the sons of Zeruiah, they are too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. David is making an oath here, and it was fulfilled, just as David had said. Well, chapter 4 continues the story now, turning to Ishbosheth. Remember, Ishbosheth was on the throne after his father Saul had died, and he was king over Israel for just two years. This is the story of why that kingdom only lasted for two years. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says, When Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart, and all Israel was troubled. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops. The name of one was Bayana, and the name of the other, Rechab, the sons of Rimon, the Berothite, of the children of Benjamin. For Beeroth also was part of Benjamin. Because the Beerites fled to Gittim and had been sojourners there until this day. So he's describing these two individuals, their descendants of the Beeroth peoples who are living in Benjamin, and they are favored with regard to Saul and his son Ishbosheth up until now. And then this verse 4 is inserted here. No reason given. It's just here. Very brief mention of another individual who happens to be a relative of Saul through Jonathan, Saul's son. Well, verse 4 again says, Jonathan, the Saul's son, had a son who's, who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened, as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. Now, we are going to hear much about Mephibosheth later on in the text of Second Samuel. But... He really doesn't play into the events that are happening now, with the exception of perhaps 
the mention of him indicates that there's still somebody as descendant of Saul who might still be available if Israel wanted Saul's dynasty to continue. Perhaps that's why. We're not told, and we don't know really why, again, it's here, other than the fact that his name is mentioned by the Holy Spirit for God's purpose and plan that will unfold later on in the story of David. Well, verse 5 continues on with a story that he started at the beginning of chapter 4 with these two sons of Rimon. Verse 5 says, Then the sons of Rimon, the Berethite, Rechab and Beana, set out and came about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. And they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat. And they stabbed him in the stomach. And then Rechab and Beana, his brother, escaped. For when they came into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom. And they struck him and killed him, beheaded him, and took his head and were all night escaping through the plain, the plain of the Arabah. That's in the southern part of Judah, a desert area. They took a very difficult route to escape from those who might chase after them. It's not the most direct route to Hebron, but for them it was the safest. And of course, they took Ishbosheth's head along with them for a very particular reason. They thought they were doing something of great value to David. It says in verse 8, they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And the Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day of Saul and his descendants. Well, again, Meshubosheth is still alive, and Ishbosheth has been killed, but it wasn't David's intent for, for Ishbosheth to have been slaughtered in such a way. An innocent man lying in his bed, murdered by the hands of two men who thought they were doing right by God and for David's benefit. Well, verse 9 tells us David's reaction. But David answered Rechab and Beana, his brother, the sons of Rimon, the Berethite, and he said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity, I didn't need you to do that. God is in control. I don't need you to help God out. And I'm not going to help God out. He did not want to do that. Remember, that's why he didn't take Saul's life the couple of times that he had opportunity to do so. He would not avenge himself against his enemies. He believed God would do only that which was necessary to bring David into that place of being the king over all of Israel in God's own time frame and in God's own way. These men thought they were helping David out, but they were not. Verse 10 says, David speaking, when someone told me, saying, look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. That wasn't the case at all. David rewarded him, but not in the way that he thought would be the reward. 
Then he says to these men, how much more when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house on his bed. Now this word righteous really isn't a reference to a man of great integrity as you might think of when you think of a righteous man. In this case, the word righteous simply means innocent. He wasn't a man who deserved to die in this way, murdered in his own house, on his own bed, by ruthless men. It was just not what David would have allowed to have happened, nor wanted to happen to Ishbosheth. But because it did, David now is bringing judgment on these two men who have confessed this deed before him. And he says in the latter part of verse 11, Therefore shall I not now require his blood at your hand and remove you from this earth? So David commanded his young men, and they executed them, cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. So these are relatively dark days in this early part of David's reign in Judah. Near the end of the second year, now about two years have passed. Ishbosheth lasted just those two years, and now he's gone. Nobody is on the throne in Israel. Abner, the one who was able to hold all the tribes together because of his power and authority, is gone. The northern tribes are in a situation, a world of disunity and uncertainty. They had already said, we'll do this when Abner suggested to them that they come and make a covenant with David. Now that these events have taken place, Abner has been killed, Ishbosheth has been killed, the disarray that follows, there are going to be another four or so years before the kingdom comes under David's sole reign. It could have happened in the first two years, but because of the actions of men, it seems as though it didn't work out exactly as David had thought it was going to work out. And that's why I mentioned earlier that that's the way sometimes God allows for those things that happen in our lives to play out. It may not necessarily have been exactly as you or I had intended or thought it would happen, but it happened. And things do happen. And sometimes when those things happen that are very, very negative, we don't like it one bit. It's a change in our expectations, our hopes, our desires. And we're crushed by it. We're disturbed by it. We're even coming to the place of despair over certain situations that may come upon us suddenly. How is it that God would allow such things as this? Well, listen carefully. It hasn't thwarted God's plan for David. He still will be king. It may not be in the time frame that David had expected, but it's a time frame that God either has allowed or God perhaps intended. Perhaps there's still a growing time for David as king of only Judah before he can take the throne over all of the nation. Perhaps the other tribes need to go through some very difficult times against the Philistines and other marauding forces that come against them to realize they definitely need to be united and the only one who can unite them would be David. So maybe they need to once again be convinced of that. God knows all of those details 
We don't. But we have to learn to trust that God does and God will bring to pass his perfect plan in his perfect time. So I'm going to read with you the first few verses of chapter 5, which talks about finally the end result. It's a good one. And we've read a lot of really bad stuff in these few chapters that we've looked at tonight. So we may as well end on a good note, don't you think? Well, verse 1 of chapter 5 says, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also, in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. They recognized that fact. They knew that to be the case. And they're admitting it to David now. And this is now almost seven years into his reign in Hebron. Therefore all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. And David was 30 years old when he began to reign in Judah, and he reigned for a total of 40 years. So he died at around the age of 70. He was 30 years old when he started reigning in Judah, and he's 37 years old when he starts to reign in the city of Jerusalem, which is going to be the capital eventually, as we shall soon see. But he reigned for 40 years over all. And in verse 5 it says, In Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. Now, the next couple of verses are going to discuss very briefly how it came about that he became the king over all of Israel and reigned in the city of Jerusalem instead of in Hebron. It says in verse 6, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking that David cannot come in here. It was a well-fortified city. Jerusalem was on a large hillside with the valley of Hinnom on the uh, west, the valley of Gehenna on the east. Huge cliffs. The only access to Jerusalem would be from the north. And it was well-protected, well-fortified. It was nearly impregnable, they thought. David wanted Jerusalem. You may remember, even before David's time, 400 years before David's time, Caleb took Judah and allowed the Jebusites to remain in Jerusalem because he could not concentrate enough forces together to be able to break through their defenses. And so the Jebusites remained even to David's day as the inhabitants of the one city of Jerusalem. David wanted Jerusalem as his capital, more centrally located than Hebron was to all of the tribes, much better place for him to reign from. And I'm convinced that perhaps most likely God had already spoken to David, this is where I want you to reign from because I have a plan for the city of Jerusalem. Well, he certainly did. But David needed to conquer Jerusalem. And so he comes up with a 
way of doing just that. He takes note of the fact that there's a spring from which the Jebusites had to get their water supply. The spring was located in the valley of Hinnom outside of the city walls in the valley below. How then they did get that water? They had built a shaft from the center of the city of Jerusalem down through that hillside about 60 feet in length until they reached the place where the water from the spring fed into a cave that filled up with that spring water and they got their water always from that spring through that shaft. As it turned out, David discovered this shaft, knew it was there, and so now in verse 8, or rather in verse 7, it says, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David, and this is how he did it. Now David said, verse 8, On that day, whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul, kind of a slam against the Jebusite statement that they made earlier, he, the one who does this, shall be chief and captain. Therefore, they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Then David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David, and David built all around from the millow and inward. They conquered the city of Jerusalem. We're not told here in this passage who it was that managed to do this great, very, very valiant deed. But we're told elsewhere. Perhaps you can guess. It was Joab. And Joab had already lost favor with David, remember. But because of David's oath here, whoever climbs up by way of the water shafts and defeats the Jebusite shall be chief and captain. Then he had to appoint Joab, who did just that very thing, to become, once again, his chief and captain of all the hosts of all of Israel. And it was so until David's death. Well, that's where we're going to end tonight. There's so much more. I'm glad we were able to end on the positive note where David now is king over all the tribes and now reigning from the city of Jerusalem. So much more that David wants to do, wants to accomplish. He's already begun a building project we've just seen, but there's much, much more that he intends or desires to do, some of which he will not be able to do. But we'll get to that as we move forward in our study in this great book. Grace and peace. God bless you all.